Good morning. Good morning. It's good to be back to you. My name is Bob Hopper. And, um, today we're going to look at a uh, two passages. Um, you could look in your bulletin, but unfortunately we put the wrong one of the wrong verses in there. So I, they've got a sheet with all the, the passages that I'm going to refer to or read most of them, but I'll refer to them as, as usual. Gives you something to take home and read. Um, the first one in the bulletin is correct. The second one we missed by a, uh, a chapter in, in Matthew. So um, <clears throat> these, you'll, you'll see how these two go together, and you'll see why I think Matthew 18 is better for this than Matthew 17. So let's stand for the hearing of God's Word, the reading of God's Word, if you are able. Uh, and if not, please remain seated. That's fine. From Genesis 4, 13 to 24. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the son of his name, Enoch. To Enoch was born Erod, and Erod fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the other Zillah. Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all who played the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal Cain was Naamah. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Now from Matthew 18, 21. Then Peter came up to him and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Here ends the reading of God's word. Please be seated. <clears throat> so our series here, this two-week series, it's on forgiveness. It's really taken from Ephesians 4.32. We read that in our time of confession. Um, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. So the two aspects of being forgiven and forgiving others is our kind of our short little series. Now last week we considered how much we are forgiven. This week uh, we are considering how much we are to forgive. And we're going to do this by way of, and we started with um, two, uh, an Old Testament story, we're doing two Old Testament stories, that the New Testament writers point out Actually, the, the speakers, Paul in, 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 in uh, um, 
in 1 Corinthians, uh, points out a story last week that we looked at, and that was the rock was Christ. The rocks, actually the rocks in the wilderness were the two occasions where the water flows out from the, from the rock. Um, the first time it took their penalty for them, for their grumbling, their complaining against God, their lawsuit against God. The second time they to speak to the rock and the water was to flow out from the mercy that the payment had been paid. This week, oh, and by the way, I made it. A, a, I need to make a clarification from what, last week. It kind of fit, fits into this week, and you'll see eventually. But we talked about them coming out of Egypt and, and camping. And one of the instances where they, they complained against God, they met, they camped at the place called Baal Zephon or Baal Zephon, and I said it meant Lord of the Mountain. Baal means Lord. It's also a. a it's kind of like God's name, which um, Yahweh. Which, which means Lord, but it actually means much more than that. Adonai means Lord. But Baal was a, both a, a name that meant Lord, but also it became his proper name. And there was a lot of places that were named after him, places of worship. And one of these places was ba- Baal Zephon. And Zephon is a mountain. It was really the mountain of the gods uh, in the Canaanite gods. It was equivalent of, of Mount Olympus for the Greeks, it was a place, the mythical place of the gods, where the gods lived and, and, and ruled from. Mount Olympus is actually a real place, but it was, kind of represents the mythical Mount Olympus. Well, Mount Zephon is a place in the northern part of Syria. And it was thought to be the place where the gods lived, including Baal, who was pretty much the chief god. In fact, he was very much like the Greek Zeus, who Zeus was god of the sky and thunder, and Baal was, was god of the storm, the thunderstorm. And he was the one that blessed their crops. And he, so he was the, kind of the, the primary deity. And so when they came to Baal, or Baal Siphon, it, it literally should have been, I should have translated, Lord of Mount Siphon. Because Siphon, though it means north, that's the cart before the horse. Zephon was in the area that was to what we'd call the north of Israel. A lot, or in fact, all their cardinal directions, north, south, east, west, were named after features around them. Negev, which I'm, I'm actually pointing probably the wrong way. Negev means south, but it's also the desert. It really means wilderness and became known as south. Uh, the word for uh, west is Yom, which is the word for sea. The Mediterranean Sea was to that direction. Their main direction, which all the other points of the compass came from um, was, uh, it had several words and, and one of them was uh, Kadem which is the word for red and that's east, it's either the rising of the sun, the redness of the rising of the sun, the, the early morning or the rocks of Edom which also means red, which were in that direction so Zephon really meant Mount Zephon when they were saying Zephon, they were saying in that direction so Baal is, Mount, is the Lord of Mount Zephon, the Lord of the gods. And so when the people came to each, out of Egypt, just after God had, had pronounced his judgment on the, the Egyptians with the ten plagues, he takes the Israelites, the first place he puts them in this area that's going to be Canaan or, or related to Canaan, is the place of their primary god, Baal of Mount Zephon, the Lord of Mount Zephon. And he's, he's pronouncing judgment on that place that um, God, just as well as pronounced judgment on, on the gods of Egypt, including Pharaoh. So now this week, we'll look at another Old Testament passage, another God, a false God, that, that Jesus is going to refer to. 
But this is a passage that would have been very familiar with the disciples and Jesus here. It's one that we probably don't know much about because it's one of those ones we tend to gloss over, right? It's a genealogy. Now, for us, we, we, if we read through the Bible, often we hear the genealogy, the such begets such, and such begets such, and he lived this many years, and such begets such, and kind of our eyes glaze over. But not so the Jews. They would have known what Jesus meant when he referred to this passage. This would have perked their ears up. They knew the, this passage very well. In fact, the children, or the people of Israel, but the children specifically, learned the first five books of Moses from childhood, from probably the ages of the children that were here, the boys, what, five, seven years old? They, and the boys and girls, they memorized this, these, the, the first five books of Moses. They were very familiar with all of the Old Testament, but memorized the first five books. And this is one of the first chapters in the first five books. They would have been very familiar with this one. So when we now we're, so we're now going to look at this. Um, we're going to start with 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 the Peter and then and go into the story of, of Lamech. Um, but first, let's talk about what what is going on here. Peter, when he first comes, um, pardon me here. He he says. Um, Oh, it's right there. Um, he, he asks about forgiveness. And let's talk first about, about what forgiveness is, because we always have these conceptions of forgiveness. And this is the, this is the context in which Peter is asking him. God, uh, Jesus already talked about forgiveness several times. And just prior to this, he's actually talked about the, the corporate forgiving of a brother. He hasn't used the word forgiveness. He's talking about um, restoring a brother. Uh, a brother that is aired so badly it de- deserves um, uh, church discipline. Uh, and so Peter's got a follow-up question on this one, and he comes to him and asks him about, about forgiveness. Now, well, I'll go ahead and read the passage. Peter said, came up to him and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? Now, what is forgiveness, what Jesus has been talking about? Jesus talked about forgiveness as defined in the Old Testament by, by his father. Jeremiah 31, 34 says, For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Interesting turn of phrase. The, the, the Hebrew mind would have understood what this was. To not remember was not to, was not to forget, because God can't forget. We know that. That would be an absurdity for God to forget. God knows all things equally at all times. He's got everything in front of him. He, he, the, the past, the present, the future. So what does it mean to to not remember? Well, it means to make a covenant commitment to not hold that sin against you. It's a promise that he won't bring it up. He's not going to hold it against you. Even when you come to him and say, I repent, forgive me, it's as if he's saying, I have forgiven you in Christ, and I'm not holding that sin against you. That's how we can come to him, because he doesn't hold these things against us. So what does that mean for us? For us, when we talk about forgiveness, it's the same thing. It's a promise. It's a promise not to remember. Now, frankly, we have trouble forgetting ourselves. We have that kind of ability. It's actually more of a, 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 a shortcoming because God, being perfect, knows all things, remembers all things. We, we have minds that forget, which kind of becomes a blessing. Sometimes it's, it's good to be able to forget the pain. Um, but in this case, what we're to do 
is we, we, we promise that we won't hold that offense against the person that we forgive. It's a promise to not let it affect your relationship with that other person. It's a promise not to, it's a promise to actively not remember, to not bring it up again to them, to their friends, to your friends, your hundred closest friends, or even to bring it up to God. We hear, see that sentiment in Proverbs 17, verse 9. Whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. That word for repeats a matter can either be harping uh, um, uh, on it at, to the person that, that, that you're pushing yourself away from. Uh, I'm, I'm horrible at that. You know, reminding my wife or my kids they, what they did wrong to hurt me before, or wrong me, I shouldn't even say it's hurt me. Boy, am I being convicted of this one in the last weeks and months, and actually the last year. This has been a very difficult time, but a very good time for me. But it's also that idea of not repeating it as in telling your friends about it, telling others about it. You're putting that matter to rest. The goal is restoration. The goal is no longer tearing down, as we read in the, in the Confession of Faith, the, in Ephesians 4, but uttering a word that is building up. It's good for the need of the moment. The goal that God had for us in forgiving us was restoration. It's bringing us back to Him. And that is to be our goal in forgiveness, is to restoring the brothers. When Jesus has looked at this passage right before us, we're not going to look at it today, but it's all about restoring the brother. The forgiveness that has a goal of restoring. Remember, God didn't just forgive us. He wiped out our debts. He justified us in His sight and gave us the worth of Jesus and adopted Him to His family. So our goal of forgiving others is God's goal, is, is restoration to relationships and relationship to God. If they've, if they've sinned, if they've actually sinned, you, you want them restored, not just to you, but to God. So now we see this, this, this setting. Peter's coming up. Peter's just had some instruction with the other disciples about having to forgive someone that has wronged them. And, and Jesus, actually, in, in Luke um, 17, it's a parallel passage, probably another time, but he, he does the same thing. He talks about restoration. That, that time he, turns, he uses that word, uh, forgive them at that time, and he tells them to forgive them seven times. And maybe G, uh, um, Peter's got that in mind. We don't know, because we're looking at, at Matthew, we don't know the, the, how that quite fits in. But we do know that something's bothered him about this other teaching. And so he comes up to Jesus, not sure if it's privately, more than likely it was something like after you know, Jesus is done talking, he comes up to Jesus and he, he you know, kind of pulls him aside and, he, and he, he kind of wants some clarification. But you know what's going on here, right? Somebody's bugging him. Jesus has been told him, kind of unlimited, you're to go to him. You're to go to the person that, that has wronged you and, and put, start this process of restoration. Now, by the way, I don't believe that this section before was talking about everything that the person does. It's something that was so grievous that it required, ultimately, church discipline if it wasn't corrected. And that's what was in, in view there, as the leaders of, 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 the, the, uh, of the church to come. But there was something that's foundational to that, that Jesus didn't use the word, but he's taught on this before, and that's the idea of forgiveness. And I think Peter understood pretty well that that's the start of the restoration process, that you forgive them. And you just don't wait to go to them to forgive them. You forgive them in your heart. You start with not holding that against them. You've made it, you're making a commitment to them, and you may even tell them you're making that commitment to them. Sometimes we never tell a person that because, we, because we're going to cover it with love. We're not going to discuss it because it's not that big a deal. 
But regardless, you were making a commitment, and you can see the wheels turning. I, I maybe it's not Peter. I know I'm reading myself into this, because this is my question. Really? But you don't know this person, God. You don't. You're asking me to forgive this person. You don't know how much they've hurt me, or you don't know how many times this person does this to me. The same thing over and over again. You have no idea. Yeah, I think Jesus has an idea. Jesus has an idea how many times we, time and time and time again, let him down or try to let him down, but he won't let that happen. And so Jesus here is responding to Peter's question and giving him his heart. Now, Peter says seven times. Now, this is a good number, right? It's possible that it was a better number than they were taught by the the, uh, the 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 Pharisees, or sorry, the um, um, taught by the rabbis. The rabbis had this thing where you only had to forgive three times, and if the, the person wasn't repentant or kept doing it, you're free. You know, it's just you've checked the mark off, you've done your duty. You know, if you kept that part of God's law, you're free at that point. Because remember, the the rabbis, the Pharisees, all these guys—they're human nature. They're looking for outs. The law was convicting if you really read it. If you really looked at it, if you thought you could actually keep the law, you would just be under this horrible weight of sin. And so what do we do as human beings? We kind of cut corners. We just say, hey, it can't be that bad. Three times. So Peter, Peter knows that it isn't quite right. And so he comes to Jesus and he uses the number of God. It's the divine number. It's the number, again, as, as a Jew, he'd been very familiar with. The number seven was associated with God, his divine providence in giving us the, the seven days of creation, actually the six days of creation. On the seventh day, what happens? God rests, and we, that's his, the day of enthronement. That's where he declares himself to be God over all creation. He takes that number on for himself. So from then on, God uses that number in, in, to associate with himself. It's a number where it's a, there are sevenfold blessings or sevenfold cursings. There's going to be uh, sevenfold judgment on the, the, the people of Israel's uh, enemies. And we saw that with Cain. That God put his mark on Cain that said to, to anyone who would see Cain that you can't take vengeance on him because if you do so, you have to answer to God. So I think Peter here is pulling that number up and saying, this is the divine number. If I do it seven times, if I check that box seven times, then I'm done, right? And then Jesus draws him right back to that passage we've read. And he says, not seven times, but 77 times. Now, in your Bibles, I think, in fact, did we read 77-fold in, in, um, in uh, uh, Genesis 4? Actually, the Greek Bible of Jesus' day, the Bible they were familiar with, uses the exact same terminology, the exact same phrase, it's either 77 times or 77-fold, or it could be actually translated 70 times 7. Some of your versions will have that. Regardless, it's the exact same phrase that Jesus uses. He draws them right back to what they've been familiar with. It's his Greek, or the Greek that, that Peter, um, uh, I'm sorry, um, Matthew records is the exact same phrase. So, so the, it, at least Matthew wanted us to understand that it was the, the, the exact same passage that Jesus was talking about. By the way, this is the only other place in the whole Bible that that 77 times or 77-fold is used. And it's the only time 7 and 77-fold are used together. So there's no mistaking it. Jesus is pointing to that. So now, 
Why? Why does he point to that? So he, let's go look at the story of Lamech. He's the sixth in the genealogy of Cain, by the way, which will come up later. But he claimed the number divine seven for himself and exalted himself over God by using seventy-sevenfold. Therefore, claiming a divine right for vengeance as a tool from domination. So Lamech has has has, has um, in fact he. Um, he's taken vengeance, but he, he, he boasts about taking vengeance. He uses that word revenge. And he's a, he's a person who's despicable. It's, it's the, the first person brought up other than Cain, who's the kind of the, uh, the uh, king, self-proclaimed king. Um, the genealogy stops after this. It seemingly disappears, but it actually is picked up a little bit later uh, in, the, in the kings, the sons of the gods. Um, I'm not going to really get into that, but that really is, those aren't angels. Those are self-proclaimed kings of the earth. They're the, out of the line of Cain, of Cain, the line of Lamech. They're Lamech's offspring just a few generations later who take this idea of divine kingship, claiming for themselves, and call themselves sons of the God. And everything Lamech does in here, taking wives, multiple wives for himself, um, uh, uh, taking uh, vengeance, uh, 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 treating his wives as if they were nothing, as if they were like basically chattel or, or cattle, um, uh, exalting himself, uh, having dominion over everyone around them, they do this to the nth degree. And it's that, because of that, God brings the flood on, and he brings judgment on, on them. But so, Lamech kind of stands right in the middle of Cain to the flood. And Jesus is pointing to him because he wants us to see, he wants Peter to see, the complete opposite of forgiveness. It's odd that I thought at first when he, that he uses Lamech, but the more I read that, the more I looked at, at commentators, the more you see he's a great contrast, and it's contrast they should have known and been aware, aware, aware of. He wants them to, us to see that if we're not forgiving with Jesus' own heart, with the heart of God himself, not just an unlimited time, but the heart of God, then we're 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 not forgiving that way, then we're no better than Lamech in the way he forgave, which wasn't forgiving. He actually killed a person. Now, so vengeance for Lamech is a warning to his wives and a song all to hear. Vengeance, by the way, usually gets, ends up with someone getting crushed. Not just people, but relationships. Souls get crushed. This is how, how horrible vengeance is versus forgiveness. And forgiveness, uh, vengeance takes many forms, not just murder, but hatred. Breaking off a relationship, the angry, silent treatment, you know, talk to the hand, don't talk to me. You know, we, we kind of love vengeance. We embrace vengeance. We, we want to take it out on people. We want, we want our hurt to be their hurt. We want to solve our hurt by hurting them. Sometimes it's just a passive thing. We withdraw so the relationship stagnates and dies in the vine. Where does this view come from? Well, it comes from the view of self. And let's go back in the beginning of our, our passage. We're, we'll pick up um, where Cain, it says, verse 17, Cain to his wife, she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, this is Cain now, he called the name of the city after the uh, name of his son Enoch. Now, you've got to understand what's going on here. This is kind of the root of all this kind of sin, all this, this claiming to be better than God. 
un thinking that you have claim over someone else that you can take whatever you want. Again, King or Lamech took two wives, not that God prescribed one. His offspring took his, all the wives they wanted. The daughters of men were beautiful and they took anyone they wanted. That whole attitude of, I, it's me, I'm in charge, comes from Cain. Comes from the sin of Cain. The one behind Cain, who is, of course, Satan. When Cain builds a city, he names after his son Enoch, which is kind of an interesting thing because Enoch means dedication. And it seems like, it's a, what a nice thing, Cain is naming this city, this, this place of refuge, after his son. But you have to understand how the, the, the Hebrew mind or the ancient mind worked. It wasn't the Hebrew mind at the time. It was the, the we call the, the Middle Eastern mind. But they were known, they, you weren't just known by your first name. You were known as by your father's name. Uh, the, the, the Russians uh, do that. Um, it, their middle name is, means actually son of or daughter of, um, of, of a person. Um, Petrovich. Uh, if it was... Uh, uh, person's middle name is Petrovich. It's it's, it's son of Peter. Um, I always call my son Ethan um, Robertovich, uh, son of Robert. I mean, it's a kind of a thing we do, right? It's 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 known, but that's no, that's how they're known. So when they heard this name, Enoch, they wouldn't have said, "Oh, they saw the city." They wouldn't have said, "Oh, there's the city of Enoch." They would have said, "There's the city of Enoch, son of Cain." So in doing that, Cain or Cain preserves his memory. It was kind of a, an oblique thing for, for or maybe convincing himself, and this is not for me, but it really was for him. He's building a name for himself. He named it, that word name. We find out a little later on, this, these people of, the, the descendants of Lamech were people of renown, men of renown, men of name. They had, wanted a name for themselves. And, and Lamech has the same thing. Notice he doesn't say, hey, I've wanted a person. He goes, he says, Lamech is revenged or avenged 77 times. He doesn't just say, hey, Ada and Zillah are wise, let's, you know, hear my song that I've done, this, this song of domination. He says, um, wives of Lamech. He wants his name out there. It's all about him. And that's the attitude that leads to this domination and to this unwillingness to forgive. Now, Compare this to Genesis 4, 25 and 26. I've printed it in your, your bulletin. Oh, I skipped a whole section there, but oh, it's okay. Um, and Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed or granted for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. The word Seth means appointed or granted. To Seth also was a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. See the contrast there? The line of Seth, the chosen line, the line of faith through which God would bring the Savior, is a line that's concerned about the name of God, not their own name. That expression began to call upon the name of the Lord, call upon the name of the Lord. In the book of, of Genesis, uh, call on the name of the Lord is also always associated with worship. It's always associated with the building of a a. a uh, an altar. Twice, um, Abraham goes into um, uh, the land of, of Canaan. Uh, once goes in there and comes back, goes out, comes back in, and both times he, he he puts an altar at these 
uh, crossroads, these very strategic crossroads, where all would see, and he, and he, and that, and he apparently put God's name on it, and, and it says, and, that, and they called upon the name of the Lord. So it's corporate worship, it's family worship, it's, it's the understanding that God is the one who, whose name we want, to, the name we, we want to glorify. Um, it's, it's the beginning of this line that would have a heart for God. It goes on to, to, for, with, to, to um, well, Enoch, uh, the sixth, remember that sixth in the line was Lamech, was sixth in the line of Seth, was Enoch. What a contrast. Lamech was the one who took a life out of anger and murder and, and, and despised people. Enoch walked with God. Enoch was one who loved God, who apparently treated his brothers and sisters, fellow men, in the way God wanted him to treat him. God had such pleasure on him, he took him up without seeing death. But it isn't just Enoch. This line goes on, the people with the, the heart for God. Um, Noah, and Abraham, and Sarah, and Moses, and Hannah, and Rahab, and Ruth, and David, and on and on and on. That's our genealogy. Um, we th- those are those are the, the the people of the genealogy that we now identify with. We are now brothers and sisters of Christ, adopted in the family of God the Father. Our concern is His name. Remember how Jesus begins the prayer. Disciples come up to Him and say, "Lord, teach us how to pray." And He says, "Pray in this way: Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be Your name." That's the first thing that we're concerned with. Not somebody else's name, but the name of God. And that's what Jesus is pointing to Peter. To be concerned with God and His name. God and His purposes. God and His glory. So in in doing so, by the way, Jesus takes His own claim on the number seven. He doesn't say, God would have you do it 77 times or 70 times seven. He says... He's telling Peter he wants him to do it 77 times. He, and in doing so, he invalidates Lamech's and his descendants' claim on that number. It's like Jesus is, is, is pointing to that and saying, anyone who would take that number for themselves is a false god and is not the true god. Anyone who has that attitude for themselves is just worshiping themselves. It's as if you say that. He didn't say those things. Get me wrong. I'm not putting words in his mouth. But that's the kind of the picture that we were to, to get from when he says 77 times. I tell you, I tell you 77 times, in a sense. So like God humiliating Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt, he was public humiliating those who would be worshippers of themselves, and ultimately Satan, who is the true ruler of the kingdom of man, and showing what a destructive mindset that would be. This is really the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of man, or the kingdom of Christ versus the kingdom of Satan. Oh, and by the way, you saw the, the title of Antichrist versus Christ. Many people see Lamech as the first Antichrist, the first person to set himself up as to be greater than God, to be in the place of God, to be really worshipped or at least feared, if not worshipped. And he is. He is. At least he's got the spirit of Antichrist. This, this same spirit that would come into, is into the world now, as First John tells us, the spirit of hatred and revenge and destruction of God's plans. So it's it's... Christ versus Antichrist, the people of Christ versus the people of the Antichrist, the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of man. 
So 77 times is just not represent a large number or even an unlimited number of times. It's not how many times can you check the box. It's more about heart. If we were to think about it in terms of how many times you check the box, that's, that's moralism, that's legalism. Jesus isn't talking about legalism. He isn't saying, Peter, you can't, you, you, you know, now it's not just three times, it's not just seven times. You gotta do it at least 77 times or 77 times you're done, no. It's unlimited. It's freely forgiving. It's unrestrained forgiveness versus unrestrained vengeance. It's the heart of Christ versus the heart of Satan. We are to forgive with the very heart of Christ who forgave us without limits and continues to forgive us without limits. In Matthew 10, 8, Jesus had sent them out to represent his kingdom and he's given them the power to heal and the power to to forgive sins, and he, but he says, he says this about giving the kingdom to the, to the people that he, they're going to. And he says, freely you have received, freely give. That's the nature of his kingdom. We have freely received, we are to freely give. That's what he's calling Peter to. That's what he's calling us to, to freely give. Okay, where does my mind go from there? All right, if I have to forgive my brother and sister unlimited amount of times, if I have to give, forgive my wife and my children unlimited amount of times, if I have to freely forgive them, there's no end in sight, there must be a limit somewhere, right? Maybe it's I don't have to forgive everybody. You know, those, those people that aren't believers, I don't have to forgive them, right? Or about those people that really, really, really wronged me. Because remember, Jesus doesn't know how much that person really hurt me. I mean, really, what about that person that, that just is hates me? Well, <laughs> let's look at a few passages and see where the limits aren't. We already looked at one, First Ephesians 4.32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgive you. So forgiving one another, that's all brothers and sisters. That's, uh, those, that's the one anothering passages which talk about us in the family of God. Okay, uh, how about uh, non-believers? Um, well, uh, Romans 12 says we're to be at peace with all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And now he looks at this very heart of vengeance and he contrasts it with the heart of forgiveness. He says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written... Vengeance is mine, I'll repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So, Christians, non-Christians, he's really talking about the world there, your enemies. How about people who disappoint you? Is there a limit from you know the people that... that, that that, that do it over and over again? How about the, the, the people that, that just are impossible? Well, 2 Timothy 4.16, Paul says, At first my defense, in my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. These are people who weren't even there, who never showed up, who we never had a chance to, to talk to again. He has forgiven them, and he is asking others to forgive them as well. And how about people who would even kill you? Acts 7, 59 to 60, the story of Stephen being stoned. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord, Jesus, receive my spirit. 
And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. You heard the echoes. He heard the echoes of his Savior on the cross. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them. The people were killing him, for they know not what they do. And his, his goal was forgiveness. That Later in Acts, we see those same people who put Jesus on the cross and put him to death. Peter was preaching to them, and they were convicted to the heart. And they remember what they'd done, and they asked for forgiveness. What must we do to be saved? Jesus' prayer was answered. So it isn't just a mindset of forgiving. It's a prayer of forgiving. We're not just supposed to put it behind us. We're to seek their good. The way we start seeking their good is to, to say, Lord, I'm going to put this hurt behind me. I'm going to not count it against them. I don't want you to count it against them. I want you to restore us to relationship. I want you to make our relationship better as you made our relationship better. Now, by the way, <clears throat> there is a cost of forgiveness. Jesus said, freely give. Freely receive, freely give. There was a cost, right? It was the cost of his own life. It was the cost, the father had a cost of giving his son to death for us, paying the penalty for our sins. It was a cost to Christ of, of, of losing that relationship with the father, even for a short period of time. The father he had spent eternity in relationship with, and in joy and in peace and in harmony. And here he is receiving the wrath of God, separated from him and, and, and going through hell. And he had a, that was a cost for him. And I don't want to minimize this. There's a cost to you as well. There's a cost to forgiving. The cost, frankly, is, for, is, is giving up your hurt. The cost is giving up your hurt. We do get hurt when somebody hurts us. Sometimes it's some, something simply sinful pride that, that causes our hurt. Um, you know, but, but whether it's legitimate hurt or, 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 a, or sinful hurt or legitimate hurt, we have to give that up. We make that promise to God. We won't hold that sin against them. But the cost of giving up your hurt is interesting because it actually benefits both you and the person that you're, you're forgiving. Now, see, vengeance is trying to heal your hurt at the cost of the person who wronged you. Forgiveness is trying to heal your relationship with the person who wronged you at the cost of your hurt. And even that cost, your hurt, Jesus bore and continues to bear. Isaiah 53, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. So that hurt that you think you're bearing or having to give up, Christ is even bearing for you. We have no excuses, brothers and sisters. We're made in God's image. We're being restored into God's image. That heart of forgiveness. Vengeance isn't ours. Vengeance is the Lord's. We don't know how to properly be vengeful. God will do that in due time if that is, is what needed. But that's God's work, not ours. Ours is to forgive. We forgive because we are in Christ. Because God in Christ has forgiven us and we're in Christ. Our calling is forgiveness, redemption, love. One final verse, Colossians 3. 12 and 13, a parallel passage to Ephesians 4. Listen, as God calls us to patience and and forgiveness. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, 
forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Just one last comment, and because I, I skipped over this. If one has to complain against another, forgiving each other. There's no prerequisites for forgiveness. God is not saying, you wait till your brother repents, or your sister repents, that person comes to you and says, I'm sorry, and forgive them. That is a, it's an instance where we are to forgive, when they bring it up. But Jesus, uh, Jesus has even said, when you stand at the, you stand, um, uh, at the altar, you stand giving your, uh, your sacrifice, and you remember your brother, you have something against your brother, forgive him. He doesn't say go seek him out, tell him what he did. He says you forgive him. You start with that. That's where our heart begins, our prayer begins. It's at the place of worship. If we remember, we've got we have anger against someone or, or complain against someone, we forgive them. We ask God to put that aside and let us restore that relationship. We're not. We're going to make a promise not to let that work against us. And that's what Paul says in there. If one has to complain against another, forgive each other. There's no prerequisites to forgiveness. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for this opportunity to look at your word and to be convicted by by your word, by you, uh, as to how far we fall short, we how far far we fall short of your glory and of your desire for us. And we pray that we would be a people of forgiveness. We're people that seek your name. We'd be people that seek to live in, in harmony and seek your glory. We pray this in your name to the Father and pray that yours would be the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.